Welcome to Behind the Knife's Absite Review Series, revamped for the 2024 exam. Want to read along? Do it with our updated Absite Review book. All of this and more can be found on our website, behindthenife.org, and on our brand new, totally awesome Android and iOS apps. We appreciate your support, and if you like what you hear, please leave us a review. Now, dominate the day and dominate the Absite. Behind the Knife would like to sincerely thank Medtronic for sponsoring the entire 2024 Abside podcast series. Medtronic has a rich history of supporting surgical education, and we couldn't be happier that they chose to partner with Behind the Knife. Their sponsorship goes a long way in supporting us as we develop exciting new content. As surgeons, we know and love Medtronic for their trusted brands like Tri-Staple Technology, V-Lock Barb Suture, ProGrip Mesh, and Ligature Vessel Sealing. With newer products such as the MaxTac Motorized Fixation Device, the newest Ligature XP Maryland, and the Sonicision Curved Jaw Cordless Ultrasonic Device, Medtronic's impact extends well beyond the operating room. Medtronic's mission is engineering the extraordinary. With 90,000 plus people in over 150 countries, Medtronic is committed to accelerating access to healthcare technology, advancing inclusion, diversity, and equity, and protecting our planet. Learn more at Medtronic.com. Okay, behind the knife, absite review. Today is a very high yield topic that you're sure to get plenty of questions on. Let's get right into it. We're talking about breast today. As always, we'll start with some high yield anatomy. Kevin, the axillary lymph nodes, levels one, two, and three, what are the surgical boundaries and where do these axillary lymph nodes live? Yeah, so level one is lateral to the pectoralis minor. Level two is posterior to the pectoralis minor. And level three is medial to the pectoralis minor. Okay, great. So yeah, just know that relationship to that pectoralis minor, levels one, two, and three. And know when you're doing your axillary lymph node dissection, you're doing levels one and two for breast cancer. If you're doing a lymph node dissection, let's say for melanoma, Kevin, what levels do you do? I believe that's all three. That's all three. So that's distinct from an axillary lymph node dissection for breast cancer. But uh, know the boundaries and know where your lymph nodes live. Okay. Other frequently tested things are nerves that can be injured during an axillary dissection. I'll name you a clinical scenario and you tell me which nerve and which muscle are involved in this clinical scenario that you may encounter if there is a nerve injury after an axillary dissection. Okay. Okay. So let's start with a winged scapula. Yeah. So that's the long thoracic nerve and that innervates the serratus anterior. Perfect. Long thoracic, serratus anterior, wing scapula. Oh, okay. Let's say weakness in pull-ups and arb reduction. Yeah. So that's the thoracodorsal nerve, which innervates the latissimus dorsi. Okay. Weak thoracodorsal nerve and latissimus dorsi. Okay. And let's say this is the most, this is the most common thing that you might find after an axillary dissection, but you have some sensory deficits to the medial arm. What, what nerve was injured? Yeah, so that's the intercostal brachial nerve. Intercostal brachial. And again, that's the most commonly injured nerve during an axillary lymph node dissection. Which nerve innervates both the pec major and the pec minor? That's your medial pectoral nerve. Okay, how about one that innervates only the pec major? That's your lateral pectoral nerve. Okay, so medial pectoral nerve, again, pec major and minor, lateral pectoral nerve, pec major only. Good. Okay, uh, a little bit something more up your alley. Blood supply. So what's the blood supply to the breast? Yeah, so you have your internal thoracic artery, commonly known as the mammary. You have your intercostals. You have your lateral thoracic. 
in your thoracochromial arteries. Right. So there's multiple arteries that uh, supply blood to the breast. Being a stranger, sometimes we'll hear something called Batson's plexus. What is Batson's plexus and what is its clinical significance? Yeah, so this is a valveless venous plexus that allows for direct hematogenous spread to the spine. Okay, perfect. Yep, and that's that's exactly right. So that hematogenous spread to the spine through that valveless venous plexus called Batson's plexus. Okay, so we talked about some the, the axillary lymph nodes and some nerves that are injured during axillary dissection. What are the boundaries of the uh, of an axillary dissection? Yeah, so superiorly you have the axillary vein. Medially, you have the chest wall. Laterally, you have the skin. Anteriorly, you have the pectoralis major and minor. And posteriorly, you have your latissimus dorsi. Great. Yeah. Again, with those boundaries, you just have to imagine yourself sitting in the axilla and look around and what are you going to see? So again, superior axillary vein, medial chest wall, lateral skin, anterior pec major minor and posterior latissimus dorsi. Perfect. Okay. So moving uh, away from some anatomy, let's start talking about some pathology. So most common or a common presentation is breast pain. It's something we don't frequently see as surgeons, but it is uh, something certainly primary care deals with pretty frequently. Talk to me a little bit about breast pain. What, what are some causes and some treatments? Yeah. So most commonly, this is self-limited. It's most frequent during the late luteal phase of the menstrual cycle. So treatment for this, uh, you can have reassurance, but if these patients have continued pain or severe pain, uh, you have some other options to include vitamins and dietary supplements, primrose oil, and then for patients with refractory, uh, you can use tamoxifen or danazole or bromocryptine. Yeah. So if it's just isolated breast pain and there's no palpable masses and you're not, no concerning findings on mammography or ultrasound, then the answer is going to be reassurance. Potentially some of these dietary supplementations, that evening primrose oil is one that's frequently tested. And in extreme cases, some of those those others that you mentioned, the tamoxifen, procryptine. Um, Mondor's disease. What is Mondor's disease and what's the treatment? Yeah, so this is a superficial thrombophlebitis of the lateral thoracic vein or tributary. Okay, and when do, you, when do we, how did this present? When do we see this? Yeah, generally, these patients have had recent surgery or trauma or have some other inflammatory process going on. And it's really, it's not associated with carcinoma or, or cancer or other places. Okay. How does a patient present? Yeah. Just like you see any other superficial thrombophlebitis, they're going to have a tender, palpable subcutaneous cord. Okay. And, and what's the treatment? Yeah. So just the NSAIDs and some people like warm compresses. Great. So that tender, palpable, subcutaneous cord, um, that's going to be the description for Mondor's disease and the treatment is NSAIDs and warm complexes as you uh, compress, as, as you say. Okay. So let's talk. So we're talking right now about benign breast disease and benign breast lesions. So in general, that we have, we can categorize benign breast lesions into three different categories, and that's associated with their risk of harboring an underlying malignancy or a risk factor for malignancy. So what are those three categories? Yeah. So you have your non-proliferative with no increased risk of breast cancer, and then your proliferative with atypia. Okay. So yeah, non-proliferative that has, so non-proliferative benign breast lesions, those are things like microcyst, macrocyst, ductal ectasia, fibro, simple fibroadenomas, mastitis, 
uh, squamous or apocrine metaplasia, and mild hyperplasia. Those are all categorized as non-proliferative, and those have no increased risk of breast cancer. Then we start thinking about our proliferative with a mild increased risk of breast cancer, and those are things like a papilloma, sclerosing adenosis, moderate or severe hyperplasia, and complex fibroadenomas, and those carry a 1.5 to 2 relative risk of breast cancer. So again, proliferative with a mild increase. Once we start seeing proliferative with atypia, those have a higher risk of breast cancer, and, and that makes sense, atypia, right? So that's your atypical ductal hyperplasia, atypical lobular hyperplasia. If you see, those carry about a four and a half to five times a relative risk of breast cancer. So that can be helpful because sometimes you'll get a, a, a benign breast lesion and they will ask you which of these carries the highest risk of, of breast cancer. And the answer would be one of those proliferative lesions with atypia. So those atyp atypical lobular hyperplasia and atypical ductal hyperplasia. Just keep those in mind, look over those, have a familiarity with which of these have a risk, which don't, which have a small risk, which have a higher risk. So we're going to talk a little bit more about some of these, and we'll start with fibrocystic disease. So Kevin, tell me a little bit about fibrocystic disease. Who, who is this most common in? Yes, this is most common in perimenopausal women. They can have breast pain, nipple discharge, and lumps that vary throughout the menstrual cycle. Okay, great. This is very common. So you'll have a woman that presents with a, let's say they have a simple cyst. So what's the, what do we do? How do we manage simple cysts of the breast? Generally, we can observe these. Okay. And, and again, this is after, if we're, we're, when we talk about this, we're assuming that there's no worrisome findings on imaging, mass, and a low uh, BIRAD score. So we observe them if they're asymptomatic and they have the characteristic appearance on imaging. Now, what if they're symptomatic? Yeah. So this is when you'd aspirate it. Okay. And tell, talk to me a little bit about more of that. How does the aspiration help? Yeah. So if the aspirate is bloody or recurrent, you would send it for cytology. And when you have a bloody aspirate, generally you're going to move on to a surgical excision. And again, if it's recurrent, you're going to need to do a surgical excision if it recurs after the aspiration. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. So you're looking for, again, if there's bloody aspirate, you're going to send that for cytology. If it's non-bloody, you're not necessarily going to do that. And then if it's recurrent or unresolved or bloody, you're going to move on to surgical excision. Okay, great. So that's a simple cyst. Let's talk about a complex cyst. So these are cysts that have a solid component or have internal vascularity on imaging. What do we need to do for those? Yeah. So you want to get a core needle biopsy of the solid component. Okay, perfect. Is there a risk of cancer with cysts? So if the cytology demonstrates atypical ductal or lobular hyperplasia, there is. Okay, great. So yeah, again, complex cyst with solid component, internal vascularity, you're going to core needle those. If the aspirate is bloody, you're going to send those for cytology. And again, look for that atypia, right? That atypical lobular ductal hyperplasia does increase the risk of, of a cancer. Okay, okay. Next, let's talk about fibroadenoma. How do fibroadenomas present? Yes, yeah, so these generally present as a dominant mass in the breast. Okay. And how do we, you, know, you have a 30-year-old female who presents with a dominant mass. How do we work those patients up? So the younger women generally have the dense breast tissue. So this is best to image with ultrasound. And the older, generally over 35, you'd get mammography. 
Okay. Uh, yeah. Good. So you have a dominant mass. You're going to get some. You're going to start with some type of imaging, and the woman's age is is pertinent to that because, as you say, uh, women under 35 tend to have uh, denser breasts, and um, mammography is not as useful. So under 35, uh, we'll typically get an older ultrasound. Over 35, we'll get mammography. And what we're looking for, uh, what's characteristic of fibroadenoma, is a solid mass with lobulated margins on ultrasound. Okay. So that's going to be what the description is going to be. On ultrasound, solid mass, lobulated margins. What if the, what do we do with these? So let's say the findings are consistent, ultrasound is consistent with the benign fibroadenoma and the patient has no risk factors. Yeah, so in this patient, you just need to do surveillance. So generally a biannual ultrasound. Okay, so you can watch these if they're asymptomatic and no risk factors and characteristic findings on ultrasound as described. But if there's any uncertainty, very low threshold for obtaining a core needle biopsy, as with any mass of the breast. So what if the you're doing that and the mass is enlarging on your surveillance? So in that situation, you need to proceed with an excisional biopsy. Okay, great. So yeah, the mass growing excisional biopsy. Now there's some variants of fibroadenoma. There's giant fibroadenoma, complex fibroadenoma, and tubular adenoma. So Kevin, what can you tell me about what's a giant fibroadenoma? Yeah, so as it sounds, it's large, so generally greater than six centimeters. And it can actually be difficult to distinguish from a phyloides tumor. Okay, perfect. Yeah, we're going to talk about phyloides here in a minute. So yeah, giant fibroadenoma greater than six centimeters. Um, complex fibroadenoma. What, what, do, what do I mean by complex fibroadenoma? Yeah, so this um, is one of these fibroadenomas. It's actually an increased risk for carcinoma. So it's a fibroadenoma, fibroadenoma with sclerosing adenosis, papillary apocrine, hyperplasia, cyst, or epithelial calcifications. Okay, great. So then if you go back to our broad categories of that proliferative with a, a mild increased uh, risk of, of cancer, that, that's where these would fall. So that fibroadenoma with sclerosing adenosis, papillary apocrine hyperplasia, cysts, or epithelial calcifications. Okay, and finally, uh, the last variant of fibroadenoma, a tubular adenoma, what is this? Yeah, so this is benign. This is a variant of pericanicular fibroadenoma with adenosis like epithelial proliferation. Great. So that would fall into that non-proliferative with no increased risk of breast cancer, those tubular adenomas. Okay. Perfect. Okay. So moving on, you mentioned, we talked, uh, or you mentioned phyloides tumor. You said giant fibroadenoma can be difficult to distinguish from a phyloides tumor. So what is a phyloides tumor? Yeah. So this is a breast mass that has subclassifications that include benign, borderline, and malignant. About 10% become malignant. And you can diagnosis by if there's greater than five mitoses per high power field. And these phyloides tumors will have tumor stains that are positive for vimentin and actin. Okay, great. Yeah. So phyloides tumor, they behave similar to a sarcoma. So again, we have those, those, those class subclassifications, benign, borderline, malignant. Um, as you mentioned, about 10% uh, become malignant. And, and we look at you know, the, the mitoses per high power fields for their malignant potential. Um, uh, how do these spread? Do these spread like to lymph nodes like other breast cancers? No, these are actually uh, spread hematogenously. Yeah, again, so if you think of them like more consistent with a sarcoma, these are going to spread he hematogenously. They rarely spread, but the, but they do uh, occasionally spread nonetheless. And what's important to know there is there's no role for sentinel node biopsy or axillary dissection with a phyloides tumor. So what is the treatment for a phyloides tumor? 
Yeah, so you need to do a wide local excision with just negative margins. Okay, wide local excision, negative margins for our phyloides. Okay, moving on to more benign breast pathology. Another common presentation is nipple discharge. So what's the most common cause of bloody nipple discharge? So that's your introductal papilloma. Yeah. So classically, that's your introductal papilloma. So these are not pre-malignant lesions. So what would be more concerning for a malignant, what types of findings with nipple discharge would be more concerning for a malignancy? Yeah. So if the discharge is bloody, if it's spontaneous, if it's persistent or unilateral. Great. So unilateral, spontaneous, bloody, persistent discharge would be concerning for uh, potentially malignancy. So how does uh, women's age affect that risk? Yeah, so it greatly impacts it. So if they're greater than 60 years old, there's a much higher risk of it being associated with cancer than in a younger woman under 40. Okay, great. So less than 40, there's about a 3% chance of associated with, with cancer. And over 60, there's a greater than 30% association with malignancy. Now, obviously, other risk factors, family history, all those things are, are, are going to affect that as well. But in general, younger women, much lower risk of malignancy with bloody nipple discharge than, than older women. How do you uh, diagnose? What's the diagnosis? Yes, yeah, so you use ductal fluid cytology and a contrast ductogram. And some people can use ductoscopy also. Yeah, those are, I would say those are not all that helpful. Those can be done, I'd say, inductive fluid cytology, ductograms, ductoscopy. But what's the best diagnostic test? Uh, to yeah. figure, when you have a patient that presents with bloody uh, nipple discharge, what's the best test for diagnosis? You need a tissue biopsy. So you get, do a duct excision and then you'll really get what the answer is. Yep. Best diagnostic test for bloody nipple discharge is a duct excision. Okay. We mentioned that introductal papilloma is the most common. What's the treatment for that? Yeah. So the treatment is a subareolar resection of the involved duct and papilloma. Okay. Yeah. Again, your duct excision, subareolar resection of, of the involved duct with papilloma. Okay. Moving on to more, we're sticking with the benign breast pathology, duct ectasia. What is duct ectasia? Yeah, this is a dilation of the subareolar duct in the peri and postmenopausal women. Okay. And symptoms? So these patients will have viscous nipple discharge. Okay. What's the treatment? So if they're asymptomatic, you can observe these. If they're symptomatic, you can perform a duct excision. Okay, great. So you know, asymptomatic, you can observe these because remember, this falls into that category of proliferative with no risk of cancer, that ductectasia, no risk of cancer. So you can't observe them if asymptomatic. If symptomatic, you, you excise them. Okay. How about some breast infections? What's the most common bacteria to cause both breast abscesses as well as mastitis? Yeah, so that's your Staph aureus. Okay, great. Staph aureus is the most common organism involved in breast infections. So remember that. Okay. We frequently break down breast infections, both mastitis and abscesses into two groups, those being lactational and non-lactational. So let's stick with lactational. What caught, what's the pathophysiology behind breast, infect, breast infections and lactational infections? Yeah. So this is most likely from a blockage of the lactiferous ducts. Okay, and let's and then we break it down even further into if there's an abs present, abscess present or no abscess present. So if there's no abscess with lactational breast infection, what's the treatment? So if there's no abscess, it's antibiotics alone, and you encourage them to continue breastfeeding. 
If right. there is an abscess, you do aspiration and antibiotics and continue breastfeeding also. Okay. Uh, excellent. Uh, that's a great point. So again, if there's no abscess, antibiotics, and it's important to to continue that breastfeeding. And if there is an abscess, uh, we, we try to avoid incisions on the breast, especially in lactating women. And why is that? Yeah, because you can develop a milk fistula. Yeah, so you can develop a milk fistula. So we try to avoid incisions, and if possible, we'll try aspiration and antibiotics. Again, continuing to breastfeed. Now, if the if that doesn't work, if it does not resolve with uh, aspiration, you may ultimately need an incision and drainage of that abscess. But it certainly does raise the, increase the risk of development of a milk fistula. Okay, so now let's move on to non-lactational breast infections. What's the most common physiology and the cause behind that? Yeah, so this is a periductal infection associated with smoking and ductal exasia. Okay, great. And the treatment? Antibiotics. And if there's an abscess? Incision and drainage. Okay, good. So let's say you have a patient who presents with recurrent unresolving mastitis, classic. What are you concerned about? What do you need to do? Yeah, so you have to be concerned about a cancer. So you need to biopsy the skin to rule out an inflammatory breast cancer. Yeah, frequently tested. So don't forget about that inflammatory breast cancer, which we're going to talk a little bit more about later, but it's certainly important. You need a biopsy of the skin to rule that out. Okay. And again, with some more benign breast pathology, benign breast lesions, sclerosing adenosis, how do these present? Yeah, so generally they're going to have a mammogram and they're going to see microcalcifications and it's going to be diagnosed on a core needle biopsy. Okay. And treatment? If there's no atypia and the imaging is concordant, you can observe. Okay. And yeah, again, this is not a precursor to cancer. Sclerosine adenosis, this falls back into, we're going to fall back to those categories with each one of these. So this is that proliferative with no increased risk of cancer. These can be observed. And again, when we say this, when we, we're saying that these are concordant findings. Of course, if there's a mass and there is discordant findings on imaging, that more needs to be done. But when we talk about these risks for cancers, we're assuming that imaging is concordant. Okay, finally, let's talk about uh, radial scar. Uh, what is some, what's radial scar also known as and how do you diagnose it? Yeah, so it can be known as sclerosing papillary proliferations and benign sclerosing ductal proliferation. Okay, sclerosing papillary proliferations, benign sclerosing ductal proliferation is something you might see it as described as, but these are all synonymous with radial scar. And how do they appear on mammogram? Yeah, so these generally appear similar to small invasive cancers. Okay, so what's the treatment then? Yeah, you have to do an excisional biopsy in these situations. So with radial scar, they need an excisional biopsy. It is associated with a small increased risk of cancer. And the difference between invasive breast cancer may be difficult to determine on uh, imaging and core needle biopsy alone. So excisional biopsy for radial scar. So let's talk about some of those atypical lesions. Atypical lobular hyperplasia. So tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, so this is less well-developed, but morphologically similar to LCIS. Okay, is it pre-malignant? No, it's not pre-malignant, but it is a marker of increased risk. Okay. Yeah. So these patients with atypical lobular hyperplasia will have an eight to 12 fold increased lifetime risk or approximately 1% per year of uh, developing breast cancer. How do we diagnose these? Uh, with a core needle biopsy. 
Yeah. So typically it'll be seen on imaging and they'll get a corneal biopsy and treatment. So treatment is an excisional biopsy followed by chemoprophylaxis with tamoxifen and anastrozole. Okay. Wait a minute. So we said that they're not pre-malignant. So why do we excise these if they're not pre-malignant? Yeah, the concern here is that there's a discordant finding as these lesions are often incidental to the radiographic abnormality that prompted the biopsy. Yeah, so you're worried about sampling error with these. Okay, good. And and these patients afterwards will typically need, after the excisional biopsy, will typically need enhanced surveillance with annual breast MRI, annual breast MRI for these patients because of that 8 to 12-fold um, lifetime risk of developing breast cancer. Um, okay, so that's atypical lobular hyperplasia. How about atypical ductal hyperplasia, ADH. Um, what's the association with ADH and uh, invasive cancer? Yeah, so these patients have a four to five-fold increased risk of invasive cancer. Okay, and again, what's the diagnosis for these? Corneal biopsy. Okay, and treatment? Excisional biopsy. Okay, and these will have a relatively high risk of, of upgrading or upstaging to DCIS or invasive ductal carcinoma with that excisional biopsy. A 9 to 30% risk of finding DCIS and about a 3% risk of finding invasive ductal carcinoma. So excisional biopsy for atypical ductal hyperplasia. Okay, so let's move. Next step up from that atypia is the carcinoma in situ, so the LCIS and the DCIS. Let's talk about LCIS, lobular carcinoma in situ first. So with LCIS, Kevin, how do these, how do these present and what's the association with your hormone receptors? Yeah, so these are generally multifocal and bilateral, and these patients generally have a genetic predisposition. Um, and so 90% of these will be ER, PR positive, and HER2 negative. Okay, okay, good. And what is the malignancy risk with LCIS? Yeah, so this is the crucial point here. You have a 20 to 40% risk of cancer development in either breast. Uh, again, so this is not a uh, this is not a pre-malignant lesion, but it is a marker for uh, the development of invasive cancer, and it's a significant marker. So, twenty to forty percent risk of cancer development, and again, in either breast, not necessarily the breast that the LCIS is found in. And when they do develop cancer, what type of cancer do they do they develop? Yeah, they develop ductal carcinoma. Yeah, important. Yeah, LCIS is a risk factor for the development of ductal carcinoma. Treatment. For this, you do a wire localized excision. Okay. And something that's frequently tested is you have a patient with LCIS and you, you do the right thing. You do the excisional, localized excisional biopsy, and there's a positive margin. What do you want to do there? Yeah. So you do not need to re-excise it. You just put them on adjuvant hormonal therapy. Okay, great. And that's because, again, this is, the lesion itself is not pre-malignant, but it's a marker for malignancy. So they do need advanced surveillance and they need, do need adjuvant hormonal therapy, but you do not need to re-excise for positive margins with LCIS. Now, there is, in, in contrast to DCIS, which we'll talk about here in a minute, where you do need the margins, not so for LCIS, but there is a caveat there. So there is a form of LCIS that is treated like DCIS. And what is that? Yeah, so that's if they have the pleomorphic LCIS. Right, so watch for that. If there's, that's the, we get into this mindset of LCIS, positive margins, oh, I know this one. We don't need to re-excise that. But if you have that pleomorphic LCIS, remember, those are treated like DCIS, and those do need margins. Okay, so let's talk about DCIS. What is DCIS? 
Yeah, so this is when you have malignant cells of the ductal epithelium without invasion of the basement membrane. So it's a pre-malignant lesion. So this one is pre-malignant. And what is that malignancy risk? So 50% in the ipsilateral breast and 5% in the contralateral breast. Okay, 50% ipsilateral, 5% contralateral. Uh, how do these patients uh, present? Generally, this is found on mammography and then diagnosed with corneal biopsy. Yeah, so generally these are not palpable, and they're seen on mammography as an abnormality on mammography, and we get the corneal biopsy treatment. So you can do breast conservation therapy here. So you can do a lumpectomy with two millimeter margins with adjuvant radiation. Yeah, you need a excision with two millimeter margins, and often this breast conservation therapy is an option with lumpectomy. And when you do breast conservation therapy, you, you need to add that adjuvant radiotherapy, the adjuvant radiation, whole, and that's whole breast radiation because that whole breast radiation reduces the risk of a local recurrence by fifty percent. It's important to know that radiation does not affect overall survival, but it does reduce the risk of local recurrence. Now, what if the lesion is large, it's multi-quadrant, or there's a contraindication to breast conservation therapy? Then what's the treatment? In this situation, you do the simple mastectomy with a sentinel lymph node biopsy. Yeah. Okay. So, right. A, a large multi-quadrant or, or for another reason, the patient can't undergo breast conservation therapy or doesn't want breast conservation therapy, a mastectomy. But remember, if you're doing a mastectomy for DCIS, you need to add that sentinel lymph node biopsy because there is an incidence of upstaging to invasive cancer. And if you've disrupted all of those lymphatics, you, you, it makes it difficult to go back later and do a sentinel node biopsy. So don't forget that. And if you are doing mastectomy for these, there are skin and nipple sparing procedures with immediate reconstruction that are, are generally options for these patients. Now, what about postoperatively? What's the adjuvant therapy? We mentioned adjuvant radiotherapy. Is there anything else? Yeah. So for premenopausal women, tamoxifen is the adjuvant therapy. And for postmenopausal women, an aromatase inhibitor such as anastrozole. And, and of course, this is assuming the, uh, they're hormone receptor positive. But yeah, premenopausal tamoxifen, postmenopausal aromatase inhibitors such as anastrozole. You may see some pathologic descriptions that are indicators of a more aggressive subtype of DCIS. And so that's what you'd be looking for there is that comedonecrosis. Comedonecrosis is a aggressive subtype of DCIS. And if you see that, the treatment is simple mastectomy, again, with that sentinel lymph node and adjuvant to hormone therapy. And once again, just to, to reiterate, so with LCIS, you don't need positive margins. With DCIS, you do need margins, and those margins are two millimeters, two millimeter margins for DCIS. Okay, so stepping it up a little bit, and let's talk a little bit about invasive cancer, breast cancer. Let's start with some basics first, some generalities. So when should we start screening for breast cancer with mammography? So if they're low risk, they should start screening at age 40 and every two to three years, followed by annually after the age of 50. Okay, so age 40 every two to three years, and then annually after 50 for low risk, your average risk women, high risk. When do we start screening those patients? Yeah, so 10 years before the youngest age of diagnosis in a first-degree relative. A first-degree relative, 10 years before the youngest age of diagnosis. There are some hereditary disorders with increased risk of breast cancer. What are some of those disorders, Kevin? Yeah, so of course, your BRCA, both one and two. You have Lee-Fraumeni syndrome, you have Cowden syndrome, and Puch-Jager syndrome, and CDH1. 
Okay, perfect. BRCA is really the most, the one we're most familiar with, with the highest associations. With BRCA1 and 2 mutations, what is that increased risk? Yeah, so it's 10 to 20-fold increased risk. Yeah, so a 30 to 60% risk by age 60, that's significant in your BRCA mutations. With these patients, we typically start screening at a much younger age 25 with annual mammography and MRI as well as it's important to include pelvic exams and CA-125 because of the gynecologic malignancies is also associated with BRCA1. So again, BRCA mutations, 30 to 60% risk by age 60, that's a 10 to 20 fold increase. So a screen at age 25, mammography with MRI and pelvic exam and CA-125. On with the screening mammography, what are some things that are concerning for malignancy? Yeah. So if you see irregular borders, if you see a spiculated mass, if you see distortion of the breast, or if you see a small, thin, linear branching calcifications. Okay. When do we add that MRI for an additional screening? Yeah. So screening MRI is used in addition to traditional mammography in high-risk women. Yeah. And there's some prediction models again, certainly those hereditary disorders, people with first degree relatives, and then those, we have those risk calculators, the Gale model, the Tyler Kutzik model to identify those women who are at high risk. And those are patients that may need MRI added to their screening plan. Okay. So on mammography, we hear a lot about BIRADs. Okay. So we have BIRADs BIRAD zero through six. So let's just go through those. So what's a BIRAD zero? So that's an incomplete image and you need further imaging. Okay, good. BIRADs one? So that is negative and you just need routine follow-up. Okay. BIRADs two? That is benign. And once again, you need routine follow-up. Okay. And BIRADs three? So it's probably benign and needs six-month follow-up. Yeah, that's the one they always like to ask because you have a patient who presents with a BIRADS 3 lesion, and so that's probably benign. And the the question will be, what does that patient need? And so they need uh, repeat imaging at six months, okay? BIRADS 4. So that's suspicious from malignancy, and you need to perform a biopsy. Okay. BIRADS 5. That's highly suggestive of malignancy, and you need a biopsy. Okay, and BIRAD 6. So that's a biopsy-confirmed malignancy, and you need to do your excision. Okay, perfect. I had mentioned a couple of prediction models there. One one of the ones I mentioned was the Gale model. What is the Gale model? Yeah, so that's a prediction model that calculates a woman's risk of developing breast cancer within the next five years and within her lifetime. And there's a bunch of different variables. Yeah, what are those variables? Yeah, so, of course, age, age at first period age at the time of birth of the first child, or if they have not given birth, Uh, family history of breast cancer, both in the mother, sister, or daughter, number of of past breast biopsies, number of breast biopsies showing atypical hyperplasia, and the race and ethnicity. Okay. So what's important to know about the Gale model is it underestimates the risk for patients with strong family histories. For instance, patients with BRCA mutations, patients with a personal history of DCIS, LCIS, or a prior invasive cancer. So there is a Tyler Kutzik uh, score uh, risk model that is a more accurate prediction model for patients with a strong family history of breast cancer. So talking about invasive breast cancer, this is one of the ones where you really need to know the staging, unfortunately. So let's go through some 
NCCN staging pearls. So let's talk first about T stage. So T one, two, three, and four. What's what? Can you break those down for me with breast cancer, Kevin? What's T one? What's T two? What's T three? What's T four? Yeah. Okay. So T one less than two centimeters. T two is going to be your two to five centimeters. T three is greater than five centimeters, and then T four is when you have chest wall or skin involvement. Okay. Perfect. Your nodal stages. We have N one, two, and three. What are those? So N1 is one to three nodes involved, N2 is four to nine nodes involved, and N3 is greater than or equal to 10 nodes or supra or infraclavicular nodes involved. Okay, one to three, four to nine, greater or equal than 10. And uh, also that supra or infraclavicular nodes uh, makes you an N3. Of course, metastasis is either M0 or M1. That's always my favorite. It's always the easiest ones. Okay, it's in, so let's then break that down and, and go over what are some pearls with regards to staging. So this is not meant to be comprehensive, but um, in general, what do, what do we talk, when we talk about stage one, what is, what's stage one? Yeah, so this is a small tumor with no nodes. And so you have a T1, which we said for the T1, you're looking at zero to two centimeters, um, M0. Okay, good. So stage one is a small tumor, your T1 tumors and no nodes. And what's the treatment for a stage one invasive breast cancer? Yeah, so that's surgery with adjuvant chemo radiation if indicated. Okay, and we'll talk about some of the indications for adjuvant uh, chemo uh, radiotherapy here. So yeah, surgery. Okay, so what's stage two? So stage two is a larger tumor with minor node involvement. So something like a T3 N0 or a T2 N1. Okay. So yeah, with stage two, you either have, you have a larger tumor or you have that minor nodal involvement. So maybe your larger tumors, your T3 and zeros, or maybe you have a few nodes, so T2 and one, that's that one to three nodes and treatment for that. Yeah. So that's surgery with adjuvant chemo radiation, if indicated. Okay. Okay. And of course, like, we're talking in generalities here, right? Is, is if there's uh, some patients might get chemo or might get neoadjuvant therapy if you're trying to shrink down a tuber to make breast conservation uh, an option. Um, but these are, we're just talking in generalities. Of course, there's nuances and there's a little bit of variation here and there. And again, we're going to talk about some of those indications for neoadjuvant as well as adjuvant therapy here in a minute. So try not to get too hard, far ahead of ourselves. Stage three, we have a stage 3A and 3B. What, so what are we looking at there? Yeah, so there's either local invasion here or more nodes. So T4, N0 or T3, N2. Okay, so these are your locally invasive lesions, these, these stage 3A, 3Bs. And depending on the clinical situation, these are patients that may get surgery or they may need uh, neoadjuvant therapy uh, first prior to surgery. Okay, and then stage 3C. Yeah, so the C is if you have clavicular nodes. So any T and N3, M0 is your stage 3C. Yeah, it's a great way of remembering it. 3C, those clavicular nodes. So it's that N3 disease uh, without any metastasis. Um, so these patients are, are generally going to get uh, neoadjuvant therapy and then uh, uh, potentially surgery, uh, depending on the response there. And then stage four, everybody knows stage four generally uh, involves distant metastasis. Um, and so those patients will um, get definitive uh, chemotherapy. A new thing that if you're, if you are relatively new thing that's come up with the treatment of breast cancer is the Oncotype DX score. 
you may hear about this when, if you go to your institution's multidisciplinary tumor board, talking about the Oncotype DX scores. What is an Oncotype DX score? Yes, what this does is it analyzes 21 genes to help predict the risk of recurrence and help determine which patients will benefit from chemotherapy. Yeah, what, um, what, when do we do this? When is this indicated? On what patients get an Oncotype DX score? Yeah, so it's validated for patients with ER-positive HER2-negative tumors that are either stage 1, 2, or 3A. Okay, so stage 1, 2, or 3A, ER-positive HER2-negative tumors is where we get this Oncotype DX. The treatment of breast cancer it changes every year. It gets more complex. There's a lot of very exciting things happen, which is great. The downside is it's hard to keep up with. And this is something that you may see popping up on tests now, is this Oncotype DX score and, and how we use it. So it's, it helps us determine what patients are going to benefit from chemotherapy. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that when it comes into our indications for chemotherapy here in a few minutes. But first, let's talk about the different categories of breast cancer. So what's the most common type of breast cancer? Ductal carcinoma. Okay. And what type of breast cancer is less common and does not typically form calcifications? Lobular. Yeah, lobular carcinoma. What subtype of breast cancer has the worst prognosis? That's your signet ring cells. Okay. So you see signet ring cells that, that, that carries a poor prognosis. Okay. We talked a little bit about it, it earlier. So let's dive into it a little bit more here, that inflammatory breast cancer. So these, again, are your, your patients who present with um, a, a breast infection um, that's refractory to treatment, and it's characterized by rapid diffuse involvement in the entire breath, breast with cutaneous erythema and a pu de orange. How do you say that? Pu de orange? Do you, do you speak French? I don't. Yeah. Changes in the breast skin. What do we see on biopsy? What's the hallmark biopsy, biopsy result we see with inflammatory breast cancer? So you're going to see your dermal lymphatic invasion. Okay, perfect. That's what you're looking for. Dermal lymphatic invasion on your skin biopsy, right? These are skin biopsies that we're getting. So these are tumor stage four by definition. So that makes it a, at least a stage three B. Um, so what's the treatment for inflammatory breast cancer? Yes. For these patients, you're going to start with neoadjuvant chemotherapy, followed by a modified radical mastectomy with axillary lymph node dissection, and then adjuvant chemoradiation. Yeah. So they're going to get it all. So you're going to get, so it's neoadjuvant chemotherapy, modified radical mastectomy with axillary lymph node dissection, and adjuvant chemoradiation. What's important with inflammatory breast cancer is there's no breast conservation therapy, no skin or nipple sparing mastectomy. Those are contraindicated with inflammatory breast cancer. Okay, Kevin, so let's say you have a patient who presents with some eczematous changes and scaling and ulceration of the skin and nipple. What are you concerned about with this presentation? Yes, I'm concerned about Paget's disease. Paget's disease. So this often presents as a dermatitis of the nipple. So what are, tell me a little bit about this disease. What are some characteristics? Yeah. What you're going to see is you're going to see cells with clear cytoplasm and a large nuclei. And there's a, it's a marker of underlying malignancy with 90% having an associated DCIS or invasive ductal carcinoma. Okay. Yep. And those are generally ERPR negative and HER2 positive tumors. So as you say, you have those clear cells, clear cytoplasm and large nucleoli. This is one that you might actually see a slide of. So I would Google image what these cells look like. If you get a biopsy and they show you a histology slide, 
they may be going for Paget's disease. A marker of underlying malignancy, 90% having an associated DCIS or invasive ductal carcinoma. How do we work these patients up? Yeah, so you're going to do bilateral mammograms and ultrasounds. Bilateral mammogram and ultrasound. And then treatment? So you're going to do a mastectomy, including the nipple areolar complex with a sentinel lymph node biopsy. Good. Mastectomy again, nipple sparing mastectomy, non option with these patients. So you need to include that nipple areolar complex and add that sentinel lymph node. Okay, perfect. So that's Paget's disease. What about breast cancer in men? We've been uh, talking about all these lesions in women. What about breast cancer in men? What's, tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, so it's very rare, less than 1% of all breast cancers, and it's usually ductal. Okay, and what are risk factors for breast cancer in men? So certainly family history, if they have Kleinfelters or BRCA2, which accounts for 15% of breast cancer in men. Okay, great. So it's BRCA2. That's the association with breast cancer, or uh, that's the associated uh, gene mutation in breast cancer in men. So that's an important one to, to remember. What about, so you, let's say you have a man who has a uh, BRCA2 mutation. Are these patients getting prophylactic mastectomies? So men do not require prophylactic mastectomy if they have BRCA2 mutations, but they do require prostate cancer screening. Okay, good. Yeah, so you got to remember those other associations with those BRCA mutations and prostate cancer being one of them. No prophylactic mastectomy for men with BRCA2, but they do require prostate cancer screening. But let's say they do, you have a male who does develop breast cancer. What's the treatment? So you're going to do a modified radical mastectomy. Yeah, modified radical mastectomy. These generally have a pretty poor prognosis, and that's re related to the late presentation. Stage for stage, they have a similar prognosis as women, but in men, these are typically caught late. So for that reason, they have a poor prognosis. Okay, so another unique scenario that may pop up is breast cancer in pregnancy. This, The treatment or how you approach these is going to depend on uh, what stage in the pregnancy um, the woman is in. So let's say you have a patient in the first trimester of pregnancy. Um, how do you want to treat their, their breast cancer? So in this situation, I would proceed with a mastectomy with axillary lymph node staging. Okay. And let's say a little bit later, second and third trimester. So in second and third trimester, breast conservation therapy is an option. Okay. Yeah, that's right. So those breast cancers that are identified in the first trimester, mastectomy with axillary lymph node staging, and then later in pregnancy, second and third trimester, breast conservation therapy is an option. With and The important thing to remember there is that some of those adjuvant therapies, notably the, the radiation therapy and the um, hormonal therapy must be delayed until after delivery. If you're earlier in the pregnancy, that's a little more difficult to do, and that's more feasible as you get later in pregnancy. Interestingly, it was often thought, or previously thought, that chemotherapy was not uh, safe during pregnancy, but recent data has showed that some of these adjuvant chemotherapies can be used in later stages of pregnancy with, and it is uh, safe for the fetus. For the abscite, remember that first trimester, mastectomy, axillary lymph node staging, late second and third uh, trimesters, we can do breast conservation and delay some of those adjuvant therapies until after delivery. So you mentioned axillary staging and lymph node, sentinel lymph nodes. So we have two options for that, right? We have blue dyes, such as lymphazurin or methylene blue, and we also have our radio tracer. So in uh, pregnant females, which of those are you going to use and which is contraindicated? Yeah, it's uh, 
a little counterintuitive, but you're actually going to use the isotope. You're going to do a modified isotope dosing for your sentinel lymph node biopsy, and you're not going to use the blue dyes such as lymphazurin or methylene blue. Yeah, yeah. So the blue dyes are contraindicated during pregnancy. So you're going to go with your isotope. It's, I agree. I think it's a little counterintuitive, but and it's it, they love to ask that question. So make sure you got that straight. Okay. So with our invasive cancers, what what are our our treatment options? So let's talk first about breast conservation therapy. What is what we mentioned it already? Just a refresher. What do we mean by breast conservation therapy? So lumpectomy with whole breast radiation. Okay. And what we're looking for is a, a negative lumpectomy margin. So that's no ink on the tumor. And that's also a little counterintuitive. We talked about DCIS, we need a two millimeter margin, but now we're talking about invasive cancer and we just need no ink on the tumor. What are some contraindications for breast conservation therapy? Yeah. So an absolute contraindication would be if you're pregnant and would require the radiation during your pregnancy, Another contraindication is if they have multicentric disease or if they have positive patholog pathologic margins after the re-excision. Okay. Yeah. So those are your con absolute contraindications. Pregnancy, we just talked about. Multicentric disease uh, is not, it, that would be very difficult to do breast conservation therapy, obviously. And then if you have, if you have one positive margin, you can go back and go for negative margins. But on that re-excision, if you still have positive margins, then that, that patient needs a mastectomy. Okay. What about relative contraindications to breast conservation therapy? Yes. Yeah, so if they've had previous radiation or they have an active connective tissue disease or they have a very large tumor such as greater than five centimeters. Yeah. So one, if they've had previous radiation, right, they've already reached their max radiation dose. Those patients aren't candidates for breast conservation. So they have those active connective uh, diseases, those uh, scleroderma, those type of things, or tumors greater than five centimeters. Those are all relative contraindications. Um, okay. So Kevin, you have a patient that asks you, oh my gosh, it's the cancer. I just, I want the most, I want the most definitive thing. So what's between breast conservation therapy and simple mastectomy, how do you counsel the patient as to what the, let's say the survival rates are? Yeah. So breast conservation therapy is equivalent to a mastectomy. Yeah. So equivalent with regard to overall survival. So breast conservation th therapy is equivalent to, to simple mastectomy. Uh, there are higher recurrence rates with breast conservation therapy. That's significantly reduced with the addition of whole breast radiation, but uh, yeah, equivalent survival between the two. So we've talked a lot about ad these adjuvant therapies, chemotherapies. So who gets a chemotherapy after surgery for breast cancer? In general. Yeah. yeah. So if the tumor is greater than one centimeter, if they have positive nodes, if they have triple negative tumors, or they have a high Oncotype DX recurrence score. Okay. So those are the things you're going to look for. So tumors greater than one centimeter. And this is, again, constantly changing, a lot of controversy, a lot of nuances. But for the ab site, in general, tumors over one centimeter, positive nodes, triple negative tumors, and then patients with a high Oncotype DX score. Now, for those tumors that are hormone receptor positive, node negative with a favorable oncotype characteristics. Those patients can receive post-operative hormone therapy without chemotherapy, but that's getting a little bit into the weeds for the ab site. So just know those general things. What is the common chemotherapy regimen for breast cancer? Yeah. So your TAC or TAC. And so you have your taxane, your adriamycin, and your cyclophosphamide. 
Okay. So something that's frequently tested is the adverse effects or side effects from those different agents. For your taxanes, just taxol, what's the side effect for that? Peripheral neuropathy. Peripheral neuropathy. Okay. Adriamycin or you know, doxorubicin? Cardiomyopathy. Okay. And cyclophosphamide? Hemorrhagic cystitis. And what can you give to reduce the risk of hemorrhagic cystitis with cyclophosphamide? You can give mesna. Mesna. Okay. Okay. So those are your adjuvant therapies. Okay. How about neoadjuvant chemotherapy? So who gets neoadjuvant chemotherapy? Yeah. So these are locally advanced or inoperable tumors such as inflammatory N2, N3, or T4. Okay. And if so, if the tumor is too large, and we talked about this briefly, but if the, so if the tumor is too large relative to the rest of the breast and the patient desires breast conservation therapy, the, these patients can also get neobadjuvant chemotherapy to shrink, hopefully shrink that tumor down and make that patient a candidate for breast conservation therapy. But otherwise, yeah, locally advanced inoperable tumors or locally advanced or inoperable tumors, inflammatory breast cancer, N2, N3, T4 tumors will get neoadjuvant therapy as well as uh, HER2 positive tumors that are over one centimeter is an indication for neoadjuvant therapy. Okay. We mentioned it before, but whole, whole breast radiation does decrease the recurrence rates. So after a lumpectomy, uh, whole breast radiation with a boost to the tumor bed is strongly recommended. How about after, so that's after breast conservation therapy. What about after mastectomy? What are the indications for uh, radiation therapy after mastectomy? Yeah, so for advanced nodal disease, if it's greater than four nodes, or they have fixed nodes, or they have internal mammary nodes, if they have skin or chest wall involvement, if they have positive margins, or if they have T3, T4 tumors, which are greater than five centimeters. Okay. Yeah. Those are the things to remember for the abscite for, for XRT after mastectomy, advanced nodal disease, fixed nodes, skin, chest wall involvement, positive margins, and a tumor over the five centimeters. Okay. And then for regional node irradiation. Yeah. So for this, you, if they have greater than four positive lymph nodes, you're going to do XRT to the supraclavicular, infraclavicular, and axillary lymph nodes and the tumor is central to the inner area of the breast, then you're going to do the internal mammary node radiation. And if they have one to three positive lymph nodes, the gray zone depends on individual characteristics. Yeah, so those greater than four, four nodes, you're going to get XRT to, the, to, those, to those nodes. If you have a central tumor, you, you may get XRT to the internal mammary. And then, like you say, those one to three nodes, it's a little bit of a gray zone, and that depends on the individual characteristic as to whether or not those patients are going to get regional node uh, radiation. So radiation is given after chemotherapy uh, because chemotherapy sensitizes the tumor to or the cancer cells to radiation. How about radiation in older adults? What does the NCCN say about the use of radiation in older individuals after lumpectomy? Yeah, so it's not as critical. So they allow for the use of lumpectomy with negative margins plus hormonal therapy without radiation in women greater than 70 with clinically negative nodes that are ER positive and T1 breast cancers. Okay, so yeah, clinically, clinically negative nodes, ER positive, T1 breast cancers in women over 70 can be treated with lumpectomy, negative margins, and hormonal therapy without radiation. As we're seeing, the more we can individualize, as we're seeing, the treatment of breast cancer is becoming more and more individualized, the more we learn about the different tumor biologies. It makes it difficult for test taking, granted, but it is great for the patients. Endocrine therapy. 
So these are for your estrogen progesterone receptor ERPR positive tumors. So which has a better prognosis, receptor positive or receptor negative patients? The receptor positive patients. Okay. And these are uh, more common in postmenopausal women. So uh, ERPR positivity does uh, have a better prognosis. Of those, ER or PR, which has the better prognosis? Yeah. So PR has the best prognosis, but having both positive is the best. So if you had to choose one, you'd want to be PR positive. Ideally, you'd have to have both. You'd like to have, be positive for both. And so what is the adjuvant hormonal therapy? So you're going to do five years of tamoxifen for premenopausal women or an aromatase inhibitor for postmenopausal women for ER and or PR positive tumors. Yeah. So tamoxifen or your aromatase inhibitors or anastrozole, it's five years. That's your adjuvant hormonal therapy for those ER PR positive tumors. So what about HER2? We have some HER2 targeted therapies and it's monoclonal antibodies for that. With the HER2 receptor is the prognosis better or worse if we have this? We said ERPR positive is a better prognosis. What about with HER2? Yes, it's actually worse. It's a worse prognosis, but there is a targeted treatment. And what is that targeted treatment? Yeah. So trastuzumab or Herceptin, and you put them on this for one year. Yeah. One year of Herceptin, trastuzumab. Um, What's the side effect of trastuzumab? Cardiac toxicity. Yeah. So they can cause cardiac toxicity. Okay. Okay. So let's move a little bit. Let's talk a little, we're almost done talking about breast cancer, but we have to talk a little bit about axillary staging. So what is the most important prognostic factor in the staging of breast cancer? Yeah. So that's your nodal status. Yeah. Nodal status is extremely important. So if you have zero positive nodes, you have a 75% five-year survival. However, if you have four to 10 positive nodes, that drops it down to a 40% five-year survival. So nodal status is very important. Sentinel lymph node bi- biopsy is indicated for all invasive uh, tumors. Something that actually came was done during my residency and is now commonplace on exams is the Z11 trial. So Kevin, what is a Z11 trial? Yeah, so this they were comparing sentinel lymph node biopsies to axillary dissections. Yeah, so it's a randomized controlled trial comparing comparing sentinel lymph node uh, to axillary dissection. In women over 18 years old with a T1, T2 tumor and less than three positive sentinel lymph nodes who get breast conservation therapy plus whole breast radiation, there was no difference in local recurrence, disease-free survival, overall survival at a median follow-up of 6.3 years. So, the, so Z11 is very important for, for boards. So if you have a patient who is over 18, has T1, T2, less than three positive sentinel lymph nodes, and is going to receive whole breast radiation therapy as part of their treatment, there's no benefit from an axillary dissection. So it has decreased the number of axillary dissections that are being done and the associated morbidity that goes along with that. So who is an axillary dissection then recommended for? So if you have clinically positive nodes confirmed by FNA or corneal biopsy, 
or if you have sentinel lymph nodes that are not identified during a sentinel lymph node. Okay. So yeah. So again, those clinically positive axillary nodes still get axillary lymph node dissections. You want to confirm that with your F- with an FNA or corneal biopsy. And then if you're doing your sentinel node and you can't identify the sentinel node on your sentinel lymph node biopsy, that's usually due to the lymphatics being blocked with tumor. So those patients, it's still recommended to get an axillary dissection. When you do an axillary dissection, going back to the beginning of the discussion, what levels do we take? Levels one and two. Okay. So that's it for invasive breast cancer. Take levels one to two. We mentioned it before, but the repetition is the key to adult learning. If we're doing a dissection for a melanoma, what levels do you take? One to three. Perfect. Okay. That's a lot. Review that several times. You will get answers. You will get questions on breast cancer for sure. More recently, they've been asking about reconstruction options. Oncoplastics is becoming the standard of care. So you do need some f- level of familiarity with uh, breast reconstruction and, and in the setting of breast cancer. First, we have our implant-based reconstructions. And with those, we either have saline or silicone-filled implants. But let's re- talk with regard to uh, tissue flaps. So what are our types of flaps? Yeah, so you have... One of the go-tos is an abdominal wall flap, and typically this would be a pedicled transverse rectus abdominis flap, also known as a tram flap. And and what's the artery that supplies that? So your superior epigastric artery. Okay. What are some other abdominal wall flaps? So you can do a free tram flap. Yeah, you have pedicled and free tram flaps. Okay. And what else? You have your deep inferior epigastric perforator flap, and you have your superficial inferior epigastric artery flap. Okay. So those are your abdominal wall flaps. Are there other autologous flaps? Yeah. So you have your gluteal artery perforator flap, also known as the gap. And then you have your transverse or vertical upper gracilis flap. You have your superior gluteal artery perforator flap and your latissimus dorsi myocutaneous flap. Okay. And what's the, so with these flaps, sometimes you'll see some complications. Flap necrosis is one that's commonly tested. What's the most common cause of flap necrosis? Yeah, believe it or not, it's actually venous thrombosis. Venous thrombosis is your most common cause of flap necrosis. And smokers, as you would expect, are at a significantly increased risk of flap necrosis. All these patients we were talking about are getting breast conservation therapy and whole breast radiation. What type of reconstruction is preferred in patients with previously radiated breast? You want to do your autologous reconstruction in the previous radiation. Okay, what about patients with inflammatory breast cancer? We mentioned previously that these patients aren't uh, candidates for skin sparing or nipple sparing mastectomy. Are they a candidate then for immediate reconstruction? No, they're not a candidate for immediate reconstruction. It is contraindicated in inflammatory breast cancer. Yeah, so immediate reconstruction is contraindicated in inflammatory breast cancer. Those patients will need to undergo a delayed reconstruction. And remember, those are patients that are getting a kitchen sink thoracotomy. They're getting neoadjuvant therapy. They're getting modified radical mastectomies. They're getting adjuvant chemotherapy, adjuvant radiation. So those are, unfortunately, patients that will have to have their reconstruction down the road. Okay. So one thing you may see come up is something called breast implant-associated anaplastic large cell lymphoma. So what is breast implant-associated anaplastic large-cell lymphoma. Yeah, so this is a rare lymphoma associated with textured breast implants. Okay, and how do these patients present? So they'll have enlarging breasts with fluid collections around the implants. 
yeah, so you'll see a big fluid collection, and often this is delayed, right? So these are years down the road, and you get a big fluid collection around the implant. So how do you diagnose them? So you'll do an aspiration of the fluid collection. Yeah, so you aspirate the fluid collection around the implant and send it for cytology and pathologic evaluation. So yeah, that if, if you see that patient who had a breast implant and they're years down the road and they have this uh, now this new big fluid collection, that's definitely what you got to think about. So you, you will probably get some questions on reconstruction and on aquaplastics. Fortunately, they know we're not all, we're not plastic surgeons, um, and uh, uh, those are just some key points and some pearls that will help you get, help you get a few extra points. With that, we are going to move into our quick hits and wrap up our discussion of breast. Are you ready for it, Kevin? Hit me. Okay. We have a patient who presents with a dominant breast mass. What's the next step? So you're going to start with imaging. You're going to get a bilateral mammography and or ultrasound. Yeah. So you're going to move on to your diagnostic imaging, right? So diagnostic mammography and or ultrasound. Okay. So you have a uh, concerning lesion on mammography. Um, and the core, so you say you have a BIREDS4, okay? And so you, you're, you're going to get a biopsy. So you get a core needle biopsy and that return, returns normal. Are you reassured by this? No. At this point, you need to do an excisional biopsy due to the discordant findings. Yeah, so it's discordant findings. So you need to do, you're worried about sampling error. So you need a, a, a excisional biopsy. That's a classic question. Okay. Patient with complete clinical response after neoadjuvant therapy for inflammatory breast cancer. What do you do then? Yeah, so they need a mastectomy with axillary lymph node dissection. Yeah, again, even with a complete clinical response for neoadjuvant therapy, these patients still need a mastectomy and axillary lymph node dissection. Not skin sparing, no immediate reconstruction, not nipple sparing. Those are all contraindicated with inflammatory breast cancer. Most common site for breast cancer metastasis, where does it go? It goes to the bone, the lung, the brain, and the liver. Okay. Sometimes you'll see something called, they'll say isolated tumor cell deposits. Does that make a patient M1? Does that upstage them to stage four? No. If it's an isolated tumor deposit less than 0.2 millimeters, it does not constitute metastatic disease. Okay. Yeah. Less than 0.2 millimeters are isolated tumor cell deposits and do not constitute metastatic disease. That's very important. Okay. So you have invasive cancer and a core needle biopsy and PAP. Uh, palpable axillary lymph node. What's next? And so in this situation, you do an axillary ultrasound with FNA aspiration of the suspicious nodes. Yeah. So you want to confirm that those are clinically positive nodes and that there's with your uh, axillary ultrasound and uh, either FNA or core needle biopsy. Okay. So you have a woman with multicentric disease with calcifi calcifications extending to the nipple. What are your surgical options? You have a skin sparing mastectomy but tumors that extend to the nipple and microcalcifications encroaching on the subarial region and nipple retraction are all contraindications to a nipple sparing mastectomy. If you have extension into the nipple areola complex, a nipple sparing is not an option, but you can still do skin sparing mastectomy. Okay, what's the name of the valvulus venous system responsible for bony metastasis to the spine in breast cancer? Batson's plexus. Batson's plexus, okay. The rationale for radiation therapy in breast conserving surgery. Yeah, so it reduces the risk of ipsilateral breast disease recurrence, but does not increase survival. So it reduces the risk of recurrence, not overall survival. What's the risk of breast cancer as well as ovarian cancer in the BRCA1 and BRCA2 mutations? So BRCA1, what's the risk of breast cancer and the risk of ovarian cancer? Yeah, so the cumulative risk is 65% 
for breasts and 40% for ovarian. Okay, BRCA2? 45% cumulative for breasts and 10% for ovarian. Great. Okay. Side effects of tamoxifen? So you can have thromboembolisms. You can have increased risk of uterine cancer, but it also decreases osteoporosis. Yeah, so for tamoxifen, it's increased risk of cancer, but it's protective for osteoporosis. Whereas your aromatase inhibitors, on the other hand, um, those do increase um, osteoporosis risk. Um, okay, you have a patient with uh, chronic lymphedema for 10 years following an axillary dissection. Again, the axillary dissection can be relatively morbid. And now they have a dark purple lesion on the upper arm. What is this? Yeah, this is like straight from the 2012 ab site. This is the Stewart-Treves syndrome. Yeah, and what is Stewart-Treves syndrome? Lymphangiosarcoma. Yeah, lymphangiosarcoma. Perfect. Okay, 55-year-old woman who has had trauma to the breast and then notes a mass under the bruise. So she had uh, a trauma and she had a bruise and now she's got a mass underlying that bruise. What's the next step? Yeah, so you need to start with mammography and ultrasound. Yeah, again, so... Uh, don't assume that this is just a hematoma or fat necrosis. Uh, uh, patients may have trauma to an area and, and that but brings attention to it. And that's when they first un, uh, notice the, the mass. So you still need to treat it uh, seriously as if it would be a, could be a malignancy. So diagnostic mammography and ultrasound. But what is Poland's syndrome? So this is a patient with hypoplasia of the chest wall. They'll have amastia. They'll have a hypoplastic shoulder and no pectoralis muscle. Okay. Okay. What do we call the nodes between the pectoralis major and minor? These are Rotter's nodes. Rotter's nodes. Okay. Okay. So you have a patient with a history of uh, breast conservation therapy for DCIS, and she develops a recurrence. So yeah. So this patient needs a mastectomy of sentinel lymph node biopsy. This patient is not a candidate for breast conservation therapy because the breast cannot be re-irradiated. Okay, perfect. All right, that does it for our Behind the Knife Absite uh, breast review. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening, and thank you to Medtronic for supporting surgical residents preparing for the 2024 Absite. Since 1949, Medtronic has relentlessly pursued therapies that change lives. Today, we thank Medtronic for supporting surgical residents as they relentlessly pursue their dreams. From all of us at Behind the Knife and Medtronic, dominate the Absite.